0: Hello, I'm Amelia. And I'm Christopher. And you're listening to Maneuvers, a talk series by the ADV. Today we're joined by Ollie. Would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Hey, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm Ollie Connor. I'm a, I guess I call myself an ethnographer. I've gone through a lot of different titles, but I like ethnographers, so I'm going to stick with that.
2: But um, before we get started, Kate, would you mind um, telling us what event that you wanted to talk about and why?
1: Mm, yeah, of course. Um, so I think the event I'm going to go for is this, the launch of Facebook, um, which, which we can put as 2004. And why is that? It's something that I've got almost like a right to talk about. Cause I kind of, um, started my professional career in 2008, which is four years after the launch of Facebook and when it really started to take off, you know, really the kind of impacts of digital, social media, whatever really were, were evident. Um, and so I've kind of, my career really over the last like 12 years has followed um, has followed social media's development. And I kind of think Facebook is like the archetypal platform or way of thinking
2: about the last 12 years of digital media and social media. Okay. So can you set the scene for us, like why, what what's the background before the launch of Facebook when you say in 2004?
1: I guess the best way for me to answer this question would be to use a concept by one of my one of my cultural heroes, Mark Fisher. Um, He talks about capitalist realism, which I broadly understand is the idea that there's no alternative to capitalism. Capitalism is it. Um, And as a result of this, there's there's cultural stagnation there's no kind of we can't dream of anything alternative so this was really kind of developing in the 80s and then with the fall of the berlin wall in in 1989 it was solidified and then throughout the 90s and in the early noughties there was this you know there's a a famous quote which is that um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism Uh, Mm -hmm. and then we have all the dystopian nightmares that we've seen over the past past 20 years so yeah i would say the kind of the world that Facebook was born into was a pretty
2: sterile um, world. Uh, hmm. OK, expand on that a little bit. What, what, why do you claim it as sterile? Hmm. Well, I'm,
1: there wasn't really much going on. Um, there was a lot of kind of protest energy. Uh, there was like a green movement, but there was no like there was no kind of there was, there was no 60s. You know, there was no punks of the 70s, hippies of the 60s there was like a kind of grunge um I think jungle music is probably one kind of exception that was that kind of exploded onto the scene in the 90s and kind mm. of hinted towards something something rather interesting going on mm-hmm. but um but yeah I, I would say that compared to previous decades there didn't seem to be well it doesn't seem to be as much um kind of popular imagination um kind of Imagining a new world or imagining new possibilities and expanding the the kind of remit the potential and that's because it's all it's all capitalist it's all based on a kind of opportunistic logic um, that we now increasingly understand as neoliberal um, neoliberal is a really useful keyword for kind of unpicking the kind of cultural vibes that we are that we're in at the moment
0: so tell us um what happened uh explain the event to us based on this sort of uh the circumstances that you've just explained
1: sure sure i mean using facebook as a kind of i don't know like a kind of metaphor or a kind of shorthand for the internet more broadly or social media more broadly we had that kind of big period at the start didn't we when there was the kind of occupation of the squares and barack obama did you know amazing work with social media using it to kind of propel himself Um, then there was a lot of disappointment that kind of came after that um, kind of politically and and I guess now uh, one of the kind of analogies I used is if we think of social media as being born in 2004 then now it's it's uh, 16 years old um, and we've kind of been able to track its development from being born in 2004 to to kind of being a 16 year old now. And it's kind of at this really important stage of its development, right? If we kind of carry this analogy a bit further, 16 is when you start making decisions about, you know, for higher education, um, you kind of start to become a bit more responsible, you become more of an adult. Um, and so we've kind of seen this trajectory. Um, and it's, and it's, I think that one of the reasons why I find it so interesting is, it's because what's shaping this, this, who it becomes, what the internet becomes, what social media becomes is is an important question and right now if you think about it what what platforms um do you use what what digital tools do you use that aren't private enterprise that aren't um, for-profit that aren't businesses it's become all consuming now and social media has become an entirely um profit-driven place which eliminates possibilities or the potential for
2: possibilities so i you said um a few interesting things that you're linking the internet and social media inherently together as almost like a, a singular entity. Um, there were those that would actually disagree with that. There were those that would regard the internet as the kind of like the realm where people step into in order to express themselves, like an extended version of um, of uh, was it Bernays when he talks about uh, you know the PR, the idea of self-image being recrafted in a new yeah. realm. Um, and I guess that potentially are you kind of saying that that is the next evolutionary step of his philosophy that the internet is the space for that? Yeah, I think that it is. I think that's
1: an interesting distinction, isn't it? Kind of social media is very private, whereas the internet was built on if you think about all the kind of the architecture of the internet, uh, whether it's, you know, um, SQL databases, or C programming languages, or HTML, all of that is is open source, it's all, it's all given willingly by contributors. So the internet itself is very, um, It's very open source, very um, non-commercial in that sense. Uh, But then the social media platforms that have been built on top of it are all profitable. They're all kind of profit-making advertising
2: platforms, um, which is an interesting distinction. When you regarded um, Facebook being born in 2004 and it being 2020 now, it's as a a 16-year-old child that is starting to think about decisions but it's also maybe the first time where there be, I believe, by law, where you are maybe fully um, accountable for your actions in terms of right and wrong and law, which mm. is perfectly aligned. we think maybe what a year or two ago, with what Facebook was going through in terms of privacy and what what it what's ability it had and how we need to take accountability.
1: Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And that that is the the GDPR. Um, the uh kind of calls around data and policy there does seem to be a kind of age of policy coming up on us isn't there (laughs) on the uh Mm, yeah which which makes a lot of sense and does tie to a 16 year olds kind of identity i mean you can join the army when you're 16 right um yeah in Mm. in the uk where, where i'm speaking from um you can get married so yeah you kind of enter into these identity um frameworks
2: almost what does that? What does that tell us about the the limitations and the responsibility of the internet or social media at this point?
1: If we if if, if we um, kind of think about some of the uh, pathologies of the internet, um, so this is, I yeah. Guess, could you uh, could
0: you explain that concept actually to us? This idea of pathologies within the internet.
1: Sure. I think um, so. One of the projects that I've been working on for the past three years uh, is a kind of deep collaboration with um, the London College of Communication, the Design Management um, and Cultures course there. And what we've been doing is exploring digital culture um, through the lens of digital pathologies and digital remedies. And digital pathologies are almost like the shadow side of the internet, the kind of Mm -hmm. stuff we don't talk about. And this, this kind of tendency to um espouse the virtues of technology whilst dampening any conversations around the negative aspects of technology it's something that dates back to you know the very birth of cybernetics um and and so through this this process with the students at at the college we've been kind of diagnosing digital pathology so i think in terms of your question in terms like what is the what kind of things should, should a platform like facebook we made accountable for we're starting to see a lot so narcissism is an incredible um kind of powerful yes. force shaping the internet um polarization the ability to you know kind of make people fight i mean i've, I've fallen out with family members over facebook um mm-hmm. the, uh, the addictiveness of the internet how we kind of get hooked like a fruit machine to this i mean way thumbing down the scrum the scroll hole uh, the yeah. kind of instability and lack of etiquette that um, we have when we're discussing the, a basic lack of politeness. The anxiety that's just fueled by being in constant communication with people that want want you to do stuff, yeah, the constant demands on yeah. your time harried is a good good word to describe this. You know, a sense of Harry's time. Um, kind of ambiguity, not really knowing kind of um, if something is true or if something is false being continually distracted the unreliability of information there, there's there's loads of like um, kind of pathologies and I mean, kind of it depends on your lens I mean you could look at this like on the way that a platform like Facebook is, or, or, or social media in general has colonised time and determines how we process reality through the design of their platforms that have been entirely based for or as I can tell to target adverts towards you um, or adverts for political
2: of political messages um what are the stakes at this point and for whom when we talk about the birth of facebook and its Mm. influence Mm.
1: yeah um so i guess i i really like the kind of stake framework um developed the kind of individual communal regional national and global um and i think that through that lens we can really start to unpack the um as you say what what's kind of at stake and um I guess from like an individual level, um, if we go back to kind of you know the way the internet shapes who we are, it really shapes our identity, our individuality, um, our sense of self, you know who who I am, me as a person, um, and how this is this is I guess this is kind of on an individual about consciousness, right? So the way we feel, the way we sense, the way we experience, um, so. I guess a kind of way we can think of it is like cyborgization. You know, individually mm-hmm. we've been kind of tethered to our phones um, and we're continually in contact. Distance has collapsed between us and the people that we care about or the people we don't care about that are connected to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think on an individual level, that's it's, it's kind of, it's, it's redesigning our brains, isn't it? It's like downloading new software into the, into the mainframe of our, of our, of our neurology. Mm-hmm
0: yeah do you think do you think our neurology is neurology is at stake here
1: actual rewiring going on actual yeah, rewiring. yeah I wouldn't well be and surprised. they they
0: talk about dopamine and and you know serotonin levels and you know the actual chemicals in your brain get affected by you know the way you use social media and and your phone and various other devices
1: right yeah i, I wouldn't be surprised if and I guess this is the kind of stuff that you'd be able to measure, right? So if you've got instruments that can measure these kind of changes, then then there'd be studies into that. But, but then you've also got perhaps the stuff that you can't really measure, um, and that you can only really kind of discuss philosophically, um, and using kind of more abstract concepts. Um, so yeah, I guess you've got these kind of two two realms there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, communally, how how do you how do you believe is is impacting? Yeah, I guess we
1: can go back to protest, right? Um, the, um, whether it's the movement of the squares, so like in Tahrir Square, Egypt, and so on, or Extinction Rebellion, or more recently the Black Lives Matter um, movement, there's been, social media has, has given all the tools, right? It's given all the kind of communication tools that these these communities of individuals and collectives need to uh, broadcast and disseminate their knowledge and to allow people to uh, use kind of p- put their own messages out and connect with people. The kind of many-to-many logic of, of of the internet enables these communities to emerge, I guess. But then again, I always kind of want to go to the shadow side of this as well. At the same time, right-wing supporters are able to use these tools um, mm-hmm. in pockets like 4chan and in some kind of Facebook groups. There's a kind of equality here, which means that there's some interesting kind of counterforces emerging this is the culture war right? i mean facebook have ignited or set fire to the, the kindling of the culture war um and they're just watching
2: it burn really break that mm. down for me please
1: i don't know when i first came across it but it really got me thinking so you've got take like say you're a, a right-wing far kind of right-wing nationalist um kind of uh, representative of an ideology Mm-hmm. then at the moment you're just um, you know putting your messages out on these forums and these boards but of course with greater access to tools you're becoming more and more capable of making your stuff look good right so you can almost imagine it as though it's going from the ask jeev stage to the google stage of <laughs> right wing um, right so and you've got like take boris johnson and, and trump they are they, they have like a view of culture you know, they are putting forward this kind of America great. Boris Johnson performs this Englishness of like, you know, going down the pub and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, there's like a particular image of culture here. And it's like this is our culture. And then at the same time, you've got the kind of emerging, ascendant, youth-based kind of movements, which are like, no, this is an alternative model of culture. This is what culture is. And so you've got these, this kind of culture clash um, between yeah. the two. And this is like. And, and the kind of fronts this gets fought on is, is on people's emotions. You know, you're trying to target and design kind of messages that can reconfigure people's emotional layout, their landscape. And using the data that Facebook provides and captures on you and people have access to for advertising, you can really tweak and tailor this. I mean, I think mean Donald Trump had a thousand, over a thousand different adverts that he mm. pinged out on like social media and Facebook based on your personality measurements your likes and whatnot different images different Mm -hmm. words Mm -hmm. so there is this when i say war it's kind of like a war for minds um i guess i I don't know i just want to finish this rant on a kind of positive note which is that uh the covid crisis the epidemic has kind of made us think a bit more about kind of hyperlocal what surrounds us um you know you're kind of you're connecting to people on the street there's a message support going up you're realizing how important your local park is um all this kind of stuff uh and i remember I, i've got a background in journalism and, and we used to i was really fascinated by the hyper local journalism and you see mm-hmm. some amazing stuff i'm in east london and there's some great kind of blogs and kind of little micro platforms where people are kind of pointing you around your local area helping you discover it and you find new kind of connections uh there's apps like next door which kind of allow you to kind of network amongst the people that are around you so i think there's Mm -hmm. like a a kind of i think the kind of regional aspects of of facebook are cool um yeah all my friends who are creators or producers are on facebook and they've got facebook strategies um so yeah i think there's there is like a kind of opportunity for stronger communal ties um stronger um kind of more innovative interest in businesses more support and care on a hyper local level. Uh, I guess there's a risk of tribalism though, right, when you kind of have these, this kind just, of mm-hmm. as groups. But, so yeah, I would say on a, on a regional level, that's that's how I would um, map out the stakes of, of this, this this conversation.
2: Okay. And then nationally, you, you mentioned um, Trump and um, Boris Johnson. I, I, I automatically think of them in a national global kind of context just because of amplified their voices are um but could you speak to
1: that yeah yeah it's um i've got um a a really good phrase that i found the other day from one of my favorite cultural theorists frederick jameson he he uses the term overwhelming otherness so it's like we're in the age of overwhelming otherness you know you click onto the internet you go even just walk down london like you're just bombarded with alternatives other ways of being other lives and so that's Mm -hmm. that could be a bit overwhelming um the sheer force of identities that radically differ from our own um so uh, in this kind of context what does it mean to be british english european um anymore uh when i may i mean i'm able to connect with people from all over i, I remember when i was growing up my dad's my dad's quite um nationalistic he, he's, he's very proud to be english he was in the army and uh I remember when I was growing up, I, I never really felt the same affinities. I always kind of felt the internet was more my home. More kind of, I was more a denizen of the web than I was like a kind of citizen of the United Kingdom. So I, I think there's, it really challenges national identity. But then at the same time, a shared geography and a shared language is an incredible incredibly strong way to connect people. Um, and so there is, I, I would like to become more nationally. Um, proud Um, it kind of has to be something that is emergent rather than triumphant so rather than being like we are great this is all the amazing stuff we've done in the past it's more about this is the cool stuff we're going to do in the future this is all the stuff that's happening now Um, and I guess with something like Facebook or social media it it can go either way right you can either bash out the messages of triumphant nationalism or you can kind of try and seed the ideas of an emergent nationalism um of like the kind of Britain to come as it were mm.
0: I think also you know as as on a sort of individual ego level it's uh easy to compare yourself to others and their identities and you know what they have or what they do and I know that there is a big element of of that you know which people say is a problem is is the amount of time you can spend comparing yourself to others and I think on a national level that's also really interesting and I think that's at least something that I've had a lot of discussions with in my sort of international group of friends during this COVID crisis, you know, we each have been talking about how the country that we're from has handled the COVID crisis differently. And I think what, you know, Facebook and social media allows you to do is not just compare yourself or your town or your city or your region, but compare country to country. Um, And I think you know, people who may previously have been very patriotic might be questioning themselves, you know, if they can see this very stark uh, difference between their country or a different country, or people might actually be more proud of their country seeing how they compare on the global scale. Um, and I think it's never been as easy to do as it is now where you get facts and figures and information in, you know, real time.
2: You mentioned something briefly about um, a global identity. Did you want to just finish off that thought? Sure. I mean, this is an idea
1: that's kind of been growing recently. I think there is like um, cl- kind of indicators of a global identity uh, mm-hmm. that's emerging. I mean, globalization is a concept as some of the people always debate and discuss. And it's like, is there a global culture? And it is not. Um, but if you take, uh, say, like veganism, veganism is something that's emerging across multiple countries in different culinary areas and isn't associated with a particular region or a particular cuisine um, beauty standards as a global discussion whether it's the kind of natural beauty or a more kind of artificial beauty um, an enhanced cosmetic beauty as opposed to um, something that's kind of un un, un kind of um unsupplemented there's the kind of binary and across different countries you have different kind of versions of it or i think an, a really good example is cinema i was in saudi arabia recently and saudi arabia is a country with uh, not the best track record for personal freedoms um there's literally like no museums or galleries or anything there but they've just had a change their transition at the moment and one of their main directors is a, is a female film director and she was recently at the venice film festival she was the only female director there up for an award um and then you've got things like nigerian nollywood um you've got the amazing stuff coming out of korea at the moment um mm-hmm. and cinema itself seems to be kind of part of this global conversation along with veganism along with beauty um and so on that of course gets transmitted via um the zeitgeist by a cultural means via these social media platforms
0: but is that i find that the global the global identity do you do you find that that's generational in a way and do you find that it's tied to the generation that uses social media the most
1: an interesting question generation because generational categories so like boomers gen x millennials gen z it's a very sociological way of looking at things it's that kind of um Mm -hmm. if you're born between this age and this age then these were the key events that would have impacted you and therefore you think like this um i i I, it's a very useful way of thinking about the world and it's also very useful because you can target advertising based on on kind of age groups so you can say if you're targeting this age group then you want to have these millennial trends um, in practice, I kind of think that these are mindsets um, that might have emerged from a particular age group or a particular generational cohort, but then um, go to different people. You know, it kind of it becomes complexified. Um, yes. And, and then I guess that changes things, doesn't it? So you have like someone in the you know, over 70 who's more into TikTok than someone who's, you know, in the, who's 16 years old and they do their own thing with it. My critique is of the, the wholesale commercialization of the internet um which makes sense because that comes out of you know, silicon valley which is american america fetishizes entrepreneurialism um and kind of making making a person of yourself and business logic and such like um and so then you get this kind of capitalist logic built into the, the internet and so then everything becomes an advertising platform um and so the kind of so with facebook the it is all just dripping off advertising. Um, I was working for um, McDonald's and on a project for McDonald's and we were doing like emotional needs mapping. And like, because the the holy grail of advertising is the right message at the right time, at the right place, in the right context. Mm. Um, and with Facebook advertising, you can do that, right? So if you wanted to kind of pinpoint a McDonald's advert to a stressed mum, where she's out taking her kid in a busy town center, then you can ping that message at that right moment and prompt that next action. Um, and this is the kind of, kind of Cambridge Analytica stuff that, that would kind of fall into full Facebook into, into hot water later. So there is this kind of like, um, I guess, uh, again, I also did some work for, for Facebook in a kind of cultural capacity. Um, and it was really interesting to think about the kind of themes that they wanted me to explore and what kind of themes they wanted me to surface, um, very much around identity. So I, I came up with a concept, which I called the edited self. And they didn't want me to use the edit itself because the edit itself sounded too too negative. Um, they very much wanted it all to be positive. Um, they were also really interested in like new rom- romance, like different romantic configurations. So um, like things like uh, polyamory or um, Tinder culture and all all this kind of emergent intimacies. They're really interested, in. and it kind of makes sense because this is all about connection mm. um, and as a platform that is created data so that it can use that data to create innovation or advertising opportunities they therefore want to increase the amount of connections or interactions with the platform that's their logic and so by studying and supporting anything that increases the number of connections is going to be their kind of motor their gear Um, and that kind of and then it, it kind of gets interesting to go back to like the kind of global identity thing you've got like say take tinder again like another kind of phenomena of social media it's um there's you could perhaps call like tinderfication of the platform right it's just spread everywhere so you might have like maybe in germany there was more of a serial monogamy thing going on and then like that gets replaced when tinder comes over and creates more of a sex and city kind of attitude and then that kind of, I mean, who knows what's happening in like Asia and Africa and, and you know, these countries, these, these, where intimacy and romance, courtship rituals have developed over centuries and were carefully tuned to the specific environment. And then Tinder comes along and then suddenly that all changes. Like there's this kind of chaos that's unfolding, all just driven by advertising, you know, so that you can capture data or you can create more connections between people. And the more interactions you've got, more opportunities to send this targeted message. Um, I think if we start using the internet more as a tool to connect people in real life and to create experiences um, where people are embodied, um, that's, that's what the internet should be for, right? It's that we should be using it to connect people. It's incredible how much loneliness, loneliness there is. You know, as we say, the internet's not Facebook's 16 years old, but I don't know about you, but I feel lonely. My friends feel lonely. There is a lot of isolation. Um, and at the same time, there's we've got this new kind of desire, this kind of pleasure that, that 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 the internet gives us. We get hooked on this like very specific type of enjoyment that we can't quite explain yet because we we're, we're we're just monkeys, right? with language. Yeah. And we just haven't really kind of figured it out yet.
0: But I think this is actually the point in which we can talk about. Um, the addiction and, and everything you just said um, in a different way, which is from the point of view of the tactics?
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I guess tactics wise, you would surround yourself with a lot of um, like-minded people. So if you go to like Silicon Valley, there's like a campus there, right? And you kind of, that, the, the food thing. So when I, when I was working at Facebook, the thing you really notice is the food. The food is pain. Like they have, the, <laughs> they have the most amazing like kitchens there. They've got like they've got steaks with like this uh, interactive map that shows you where the cow came from. You know they've got um they, they keep you there. Uh, they create this like complete ecosystem where you're just like you don't have to leave. Um, mm-hmm. so the food really is that. So that's kind of one tactic, right? You make um, you make like the environment so like a filter bubble um and then like in the kind of campuses in silicon valley they've got you know live entertainment music people would want to come and play there they've got like gyms so you create i guess it's almost like creating a world right it's like creating a world um where where every desire is is kind of catered for it's like super paternalism almost um so i guess that's kind of one tactic they've used and then you can imagine like Mark Zuckerberg himself is the kind of puppet of, of Facebook, uh, the, the master of Or well, he would be he he surrounded by legal advisers who'd all just kind of reinforce his ideologies um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and protect him. I mean, he's, he's, I don't know if you've ever seen him speak, but he, he doesn't seem like the smartest guy. <laughs> I have to be honest with you, I've never been too enamoured by anything that he says, he looks a bit like a robot when he's talking, as though he's, 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 he's been fed fines. Um, interesting mm, um, yeah he is very unnerving to watch
0: in person
1: yeah and I've, I've been to a few a few kind of art shows and uh, like they're obsessive as image you know if you go to like kind of art show where they've got sort of like digital culture they'll have like videos of Mark Zuckerberg and they'll be kind of doing their kind of artistic thing with them it's mm-hmm. just kind, of, kind of yeah it's his face isn't it it's and South Park, South Park did an amazing episode about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, where he was like, his he, he was they framed him as like a kung fu master who's who thought his style was the best and refused to accept that any other style had any place, which I thought was genius. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that's a title. Is that kind of what you're what you're thinking? What you're referring to?
0: Yeah, I think one of the ones that I thought was really interesting is this concept of engineered addiction.
1: Right, and that kind of that kind of dopamine addiction gambling type thing you'd associate with a place like las vegas or casinos las vegas is our world's right you've got the eiffel tower there you've got like the pyramids <laughs> there you've got like this 24 hour place where sunlight doesn't come in and they're giving you free food and free drink and you can just stay in this like world where every desire is satisfied you
2: just keep satisfying that that addictive impulse when we're talking about um have we seen that and um, has have you seen anything like facebook before like what's mm. done to people
1: yeah yeah completely kind of um rewiring our our kind of social it's it's funny really because it's like it's post gutenberg isn't it that's a kind of good term that i've heard for social media so so, really cool. so, <laughs> so gutenberg did the printing press um ah. like back in 14 whenever i'm not too good in history but
0: uh, was it 1500 maybe it was fourteen.
1: and then like that meant you could print stuff right and then suddenly the bible got into people's hands and then like it, the novel happened and the whole printing press but now like this marks a kind of post gutenberg you don't need the print anymore mm. um it's it's, def- it's digital so in terms of like contextualizing it you, you'd think this is the biggest kind of shift since since the gutenberg press when suddenly so, and it went then i guess then would be the the translations of the bible um so before it was just a very small number of like priests who had access to the word Mm. of god and then you had Mm -hmm. um i think like william tyndale he's like he translated the bible and got executed for it and did like an amazingly beautiful translation of it um and you've got like all the kind of stories of like young people smuggling copies of like the english translation because you weren't supposed to have an english (laughs) latin so so it when the, I guess the Gutenberg printing press certainly caused a lot of um, uh, rewiring of culture um,
2: and Mm. people's minds.
0: Well, and it completely changed how people communicated.
2: Um, I wanted to get an understanding from you. How did people respond to this as it was unfolding, as Facebook was coming out? Do you have an idea of how people were responding to it?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's a model that's quite useful here. from a research company called Gartner and they do the hype cycle, which is oh, yeah. they, they map technology onto it. So it's a really interesting resource. And um, what they have it kind of, the graph kind of, you have like the initial trigger, the technology trigger, and then you have this like inflated expectations. So the graph goes really high peak, and then it gets the peak of inflated expectations. <clears throat> and then it kind of dips down to the, what they call the trowel of disillusionment you know, as like all the energy's gone. And then after that, it kind of gradually picks back up again into the um, plateau of productivity, I think they call it. Interesting. Um, And you can kind of track tech on that, right? So AI kind of got really excited, now it's kind of not so interesting. Virtual reality, there was that kind of hype moment. So it's almost like the the kind of, what is the process of hype or the kind of journey that hype goes through? Um, and I, I mean, I ch- I'm i a victim of this. I'm, I'm a tech. <laughs> we all are. Yeah, we can't yeah. help it, can we? We like the new, and then we fetishize the
2: new. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know what? we the, the greatest reference I think we can, in, in pop culture that we can maybe look at was what um, 2001 Space Odyssey did um, in terms of its technology and uh, as his projection of what things would become. You know, there's that famous lawsuit between um, Kubrick and Apple, that Kubrick designed that the iPad back way back when, and then we've got things like in the in the 80s where um, when Tron first came out and everyone was like, oh my god, VR, um, that world of living in the game. So when we're talking about VR and AI, we're going back, you know, at this point, what 40 years, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, Star Trek, Trek is, uh, made
0: Star Trek made references to it too, way before that
2: absolutely and culturally as well i i I discovered that star trek had the first interracial kiss on tv Mm, yeah and And they Mm -hmm.
0: they
1: got a kind of gay couple in the latest series as well which is really well represented
2: absolutely and i think this is what was really um this is where i guess my question also comes about when you're talking about the spike in kind of you know speculation and trend and then it dips where people realize oh we won't get there for a while and then there's like a, I think what you call it the the, the plateauing or what plateau I plateau
0: of productivity
2: plateau of productivity. But I think it's like a slow incline until it reaches you know its full fruition. Yeah, right? yeah.
1: But you you could say the same about protest movements as well, right? So take Occupy yeah. Wall Street, big explosion, everyone goes out after the recession to protest, huge amount of ideas with their anarchist ideas brought to the surface, and eventually the police clamp down and it clear it away, and we all get depressed and whatever Mm -hmm. but then gradually all the ideas that were created during that movement that moment um, do their work Um, and the same kind of thing we can imagine for extinction rebellion which is really kind of in everyone's zeitgeist um, Mm -hmm. and now doesn't seem to be as much a part of our kind of zeitgeist but the ideas are you know really kind of i mean i was everywhere i worked i would drop the extinction rebellion flyers around you know just to Mm -hmm. kind of to seed, to see the ideas And they see us grow and now we'll see the same thing with black lives matter there'll be like the um this kind of big explosion of energy and there'll be the disillusionment um but then the kind of the the key ideas the main ideas the powerful ideas of progress will will do their work i guess the only problem here is this leads to like a gradualism like like a kind of like oh it's okay things are gradual things are slow that we need to let things take their time which is like a kind of alternative logic to something like a revolution, which is like no, let's change it now. Um, and I think I was one of my friends was writing about slavery, and when slavery was abolished, some there was one document which someone had used the word gradual, and said we'll do this gradually, and then that just held back, you know, through eight years the kind of full abolition of slavery. So there are kind of dangers in this kind of model as well as benefits of thinking through it.
2: I think that's that that's an incredible reference in terms of gradualism when you talked about the element of slavery. Um, you know the the way that it was discussed was, you know, oh, there was a moral kind of line where you oh, saw, you know this isn't good, we should change it. But in fact, it was it was a losing battle. Um, slave owners were losing the pirates that were kind of um impending on other people um, made it made it necessary. But I think the one thing that um, when you talk about um, you know, we'll face this out over time, reminded me, at the current moment of the furlough system is the compensation of loss which is what was happening in the UK with some of the papers which came out a couple years ago that slave owners were compensated for their loss of slaves.
0: Oh yeah up until what four years ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's still countries that are still getting benefits of colonialism, they say, so they're pay, still paying other nations. I believe France is one of them that's still getting quote unquote colonial tax from um, from other nations from Senegal. So it's, it's an incredible, you know, just that idea of gradualism. I never really thought about it. And then also iteration of what does it look like over time if we try it in this way and trying this model. Black Lives Matter, unfortunately, is only getting um, a a global spike now and i think that's only because of the nature of timing where everybody in the world is vulnerable because anyone could die from from covid right yeah Um, but i guess what i want to do is even tie back um sorry me did you want to jump into something
0: well no i just think that timing has always been one of the most important things to get anything off the ground right timing for i think in history you know looking back uh timing is is has proven to be you know one of the most sort of sort of it's the exceptional circumstances which is why we always ask what the circumstances are before the event because most of the time the circumstances are integrally linked to the event um and I think that has been the exact same case here with Black Lives Matter. I briefly wanted to ask you as well, Ollie, actually, in this hype cycle graph uh thing, what part of it do you think Facebook and maybe the rest of social media is in now? Have we reached the plateau of productivity or are we down in the depths of the I don't know, depressing oh. dip or yeah, whatever that was? I, I, I think
1: I mean, that's a very complex question um, to answer. And I I think the best way I could perhaps offer it is, I I can see us moving beyond social media as we know it. Um, I think that for me, it's all about content and form, right? So content um, is about the kind of things we discuss, the kind of the, the themes, the topics, the issues, and then form is the way in which we talk about it. So if we talk about Gutenberg, go back to that, and the printing press has uh, changed the way the form, the written word was able to disseminate more. Um, if you think about the kind of newspapers, when they emerged, they allowed, there were a different form for people to kind of get their thinking out. Um, I think what we're doing now is a new form, this kind of like a um, kind of deep, meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that for me, I had this kind of moment when Because I used to be on Twitter all the time. I used to be on LinkedIn. I used to be on Medium. And I would be posting stuff. And I'd be looking at my clicks. And I'd see, you know, wanting to see my score. And wanting to see my kind of feedback and all the rest of it. And then I just stopped. And I thought, who really matters? And I thought, "It's it's my friends. It's the people I know. It's the people I connect with. I want them to read what I write. I want them to be my reader. I want to read what they write. I want to read what they're thinking. And since then, I've just really focused more on developing, like, my own network. My own social network. Um, yeah. Rather than broadcasting um, okay. out, which I guess is the logic of the 20th century where you had, you know, the kind of, as you say, the one-to-many model. Mm. Now the many-to-many model is, is kind of starting to emerge. And I think that if we are in an era of platform capitalism, where it's all about increasing the amount of interactions, yeah. I like to think that we're we'll seeing alternative platforms emerge. And I think as soon as it becomes easier to make these platforms. Um, the only, the only risk, of course, is that this is um, elite, you know, it's a very small section of society of the creative class, I guess, who are really kind of capitalising on this, um, which is a different kind of discussion to the role of these social media platforms in, in the future of democracy, um, mm. the future kind of manipulation. Um,
0: well. And also, you know, whatever new social media is created, we have seen some new ones in the last few years, will they eventually just also be owned by Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> is that the destiny for every piece of, every new piece of uh, social media, you know, technology or platform? Are they just yeah. destined to be controlled by Facebook?
1: And, and I think the kind of history of colonialism and like, I, I don't know, I was reading um, Things Fall Apart recently um, by Chwai Chibi, I'm saying that correct? Um, chinua yeah. And I was looking at the kind of process of of colonization as it was going there first, where they set up the church, and then people attacked the church. They sent the army, and all this kind of stuff. And I couldn't help but notice parallels between that and Silicon Valley, and the way Silicon yeah. Valley is colonizing the internet and colonizing our lives. Um,
0: well, the internet, and by 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 you know extension, then also the world, because the internet is global. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that's it. So if we think if we and that's kind of why I've got hope for it is as soon as we start as we start articulating the, the laws of motion of of processes and the more we articulate and understand them, we can start drawing them then we can start to find them in places and I think that what this will mean is we'll see how American ideology has shaped our experience of, of the internet of social media and then we can start thinking well what does London have to offer what does Nigeria have to offer? What does South Korea have to offer? What do all these kind of Beijing have to offer? What, what, what does Hong Kong have to offer? And we start to kind of find the kind of local identities of particular geographies with their histories. Because that's the other thing, Silicon Valley doesn't have a history. America doesn't have a history in the same way that other countries have long, deep histories. Um, how do they shape the experience of the internet? And I think that's, that, that is the singularity i guess it's like a kind of like uh an incredible kind of thing to look forward to and it's probably already there it's not something that's going to come it's something that's already there but because of the attention economy and how much our attention is controlled by these small number of companies we just don't know it's there and we can't find it and we're too addicted to these platforms to to go and find it um maybe